Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. Today, in keeping with the Advent season, I hope to begin a short series of sermons on the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And to that end, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we read the verses 13 through 21. Let us hear the word of God. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. The text for the sermon today is taken from this passage, 1 Peter 1 and verse 20. And there we read these words, He, that is Christ, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. May the Lord bless and apply the reading and preaching of his holy word to our hearts. Dear friends, during the Advent season, we reflect on the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Now often in this connection, we focus our attention on the Old Testament prophecies of Christ's birth. At other times, we focus on the narratives surrounding Christ's birth. But today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to focus our attention not on a prophecy or on a narrative, but on a statement, a theologically loaded but also immensely comforting statement about the coming of Christ into the world. And we can find that statement in the words of our text, 1 Peter 1 and verse 20. 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter to the believers in Asia Minor, and it was a time of persecution. Christians were suffering greatly for their faith. In fact, according to tradition, not long after Peter wrote this very epistle, he himself was crucified in Rome upside down. Peter wrote this letter in part to encourage the suffering Christians to persevere in their sufferings. But before Peter addresses this subject, he first of all provides a glorious description of our salvation in Christ. He does so in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to verse 12. Following that, he lays out some of the implications of this salvation for our daily lives. He does that in verse 13 of chapter 1, all the way to chapter 3, 
verse 12. And so having declared that we are redeemed from our sins by the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, Peter writes the words of our text. He says, He, that is the spotless Lamb of God, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And it's to these words that we turn our attention with God's help. Our theme is the glorious manifestation of Christ in the world. And we'll see that his manifestation was, first of all, in fulfillment of the decree of God, secondly, according to the time of God, and thirdly, for the benefit of the people of God. Our text begins with an astounding truth. Christ, that is his coming, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Now, some English translations translate the word foreordained as foreknew. But to say that God foreknew his son is simply stating the obvious, of course. Of course, God foreknew him. He was, after all, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who dwelt in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. And for that reason, some translations, including our own New King James Version, translates this word as foreordained. Other translations use a word like chosen or destined or predestined, which is also legitimate. And so Christ, what Peter is saying, is that Christ was foreordained. Specifically, his coming into the world was foreordained. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, in fact. And the reference here, of course, is to the creation. Long before God created the world and everything in it, in other words, from all eternity, God the Father foreordained the coming of Christ, his Son, into the world. Now, what did he foreordain him to do? Peter doesn't say explicitly, but it's not hard to figure out. Because in the previous verse, verse 19, Peter declares that his readers were redeemed not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. In other words, the blood that he shed on the cross. And now he says he was foreordained to that exact task. Christ was foreordained by God from all eternity to come into the world to suffer and to die for the sins of his people. Now theologians refer to this as the covenant of redemption otherwise known as the Council of Peace. This is the covenant established in eternity between the three persons of the Holy Trinity in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit covenant together to save the elect, to save those whom God has ordained to everlasting life. More specifically, in this covenant, God the Father decreed to save a certain number of persons out of the whole human race and to give them to his son on the condition that he make atonement for their sins. The son in turn agreed to take upon himself human flesh, to live a life of perfect obedience and to pay the penalty for the sins of his people by dying on the cross. And as a reward for doing this, the father promised to grant his son the elect as his own people to serve and to glorify and reign with him forever. And the Holy Spirit, in turn, agreed to apply the saving benefits of Christ to these elect. And so when Peter says 
that Christ was foreordained to come into the world to die for the sins of his people, he's referring to what took place in the covenant of redemption, specifically between the Father and the Son. And what's especially striking about this is the fact that the remedy is prescribed before the disease. Now to us, that seems illogical, even backward. We think the remedy should be prescribed only after the disease. First man, in other words, should fall into sin. Then the son should agree to do that which was necessary to secure the salvation of the elect. But that's not what happened. First God foreordained the son to secure the salvation of his elect, and then man fell into sin. Commenting on this, the great 16th century reformer John Calvin writes this, and I quote, he says, Herein shines forth more fully the unspeakable goodness of God, that he anticipated our disease by the remedy of hid grace, and provided a restoration to life before the first man had fallen into death. In other words, salvation, our salvation, was no afterthought. It was not the case that the fall of man somehow caught God by surprise, requiring him to hastily develop some kind of plan whereby sinners could be rescued. First of all, the fall did not catch him by surprise because that too was ordained by God from all eternity. And secondly, his plan to save the elect was not hastily developed because God developed that plan from all eternity. Another commentator writes this, and I quote, A Savior was provided before sin was committed, and the method of man's recovery was settled before his ruin took place, and which was done without any regard to the works and merits of men, but is wholly owing to the free and sovereign grace of God and to his everlasting love, both to the Redeemer and the redeemed. And so we see then how much God loves his people. Child of God, today God loved you so much that from all eternity he devised a plan, a perfect plan, whereby you could be saved. He had a plan in place, a perfect plan, and it would result in the salvation of every single one of his elect. And so the coming of Christ took place in fulfillment of the decree of God. But secondly, we notice it also took place according to the time of God. That brings us to our next point. After observing that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, Peter goes on to say this, but was manifest in these last times. Now, there's a strong contrast here that's more obvious in the original Greek than in the English translation. The sense is that although Christ was foreordained ahead of time, in other words, from all eternity, it was only in these last days that he was manifested. Now, the verb manifested is a key word in our text. It means to reveal or to make clear. And that word implies pre-existence. 
It's not the case that before he was manifested, Christ did not exist. As the second person of the Holy Trinity, Christ, as the Son of God, existed from all eternity and will exist to all eternity. And so when Peter says he was manifested, he simply means he was revealed in human flesh. In the original Greek, this verb is in the passive voice. And that means that the action of the verb is performed upon rather than by the subject. Christ did not manifest himself, rather he was manifested. By whom? Well, by God, specifically by God the Father. God the Father manifested, he revealed his Son to the world. Now, how did he do this? Well, several ways. First of all, he manifested his Son by giving him a body. For thousands of years, Christ was hidden from view. Now, to be sure, he was foreshadowed in the types of the Old Testament. He was foreshadowed in the prophets and priests and kings. He was foreshadowed in the various feast days and the sacrifices and in the furnishings of the temple. At times, he even physically manifested himself as the angel of the Lord. But at no time did he actually appear in the flesh, meaning in his own flesh. That did not take place until he was born in Bethlehem. And we read about that in Luke chapter 2. We read there how as a result of a decree from Caesar Augustus, every person in the empire was taxed. And so Joseph and Mary traveled all the way from Nazareth and Galilee, their hometown, to Bethlehem, the city of David, because that's where Joseph was from. He was of the house and lineage of David. And it was while they were there that Mary delivered her firstborn child, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke says she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This was Christ's manifestation. His incarnation, his birth, was God manifesting his Son to us. Secondly, God manifested his Son by his own testimony. On two occasions in the Gospels, God declared publicly that Christ was his beloved Son in whom he was well pleased. The first time was at his baptism, and the second time was at his transfiguration. And in doing this, and in booming this from heaven, God manifested his Son to the world. Thirdly, God manifested his Son by his own works, by giving his Son the power to perform miracles. God declared that Christ was who he said he was. He was the only begotten Son of God and the promised Messiah of God. Fourthly, God manifested his Son especially by his resurrection. This is the aspect that Paul brings out in Romans chapter 1, the verses 1 to 4. There Paul writes that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so what Paul is saying is that God manifested his son by raising him from the dead. He declared, as it were, that Christ was his son. Fifthly, John Calvin observes that God also manifested his son in the gospel. He writes, and I quote, included in these words, as I think, is not only the personal appearance of Christ, but also the proclamation of the gospel. For by the coming of Christ... God executed what he had decreed, and what he had obscurely indicated to the fathers is now clearly and plainly made known to us by the gospel. In other words, Calvin says that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, God 
is manifesting. He's revealing his Son to sinners. And so it's clear how God manifested his Son. And you notice when all this took place. Peter writes, in these last times, literally at the end of times. Now a similar expression appears in Hebrews 1 verse 2. And there we read that God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. The point is that God manifested his Son at exactly the right time. Galatians 4 verse 4 echoes this. Paul there refers to this as the fullness of time. He says, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we're reminded here that the outworking of God's plan of redemption and Christ's specific role in it was not random. God chose the exact time and the exact circumstances when his Son should be manifested, and not a moment sooner or later. Now that raises the question, why did God manifest his Son at this particular time in history? Why not a hundred years earlier, or a hundred years later, or five hundred years later, or earlier? Why, Why not today, in fact? Well, ultimately, we can't answer that question because God is absolutely sovereign and he decides when and how he will act. And yet, having said that, there are some very good reasons why God chose to manifest his son when he did in the first century AD. Because first of all, by this time, the Greek language had become the universal language of the world. That made it much easier to spread the gospel to all nations. It meant that the apostles didn't have to learn all kinds of different languages. Secondly, the presence of Jewish synagogues in many places throughout the Gentile world provided Christian missionaries like Paul with a convenient place to begin their missionary activity. And that's exactly what Paul did. Every time he went to a new city, he started to preach in the local synagogue. Thirdly, the construction of vast network of roads by the Romans, some of which are still in use today, enabled these missionaries to travel from one place to the next with relative ease. Fourthly, the period in which Christ was born and lived was a period of great peace. It's called in Latin the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the fact that there was such peace enabled the apostles and evangelists to move freely throughout the empire. Fifthly, and most importantly, the time in which Christ was born was a time of great spiritual darkness and emptiness. And that was true both of Jews and Gentiles alike. The Jews, thanks largely to the influence of the Pharisees, had reduced the worship of God to a legalistic system. They said, as long as you do this and don't do that, you'll be okay. And that left the people with a huge spiritual void in their lives. So that by the time John the Baptist arrives on the scene, they flock to him by the thousands. Why? Because John preached a different message than the one they were used to hearing. It was a message of repentance and hope in the coming Messiah. And things among the Gentiles were not much different. The Greeks and the Romans worshipped a whole plethora of gods. But by this time, hardly anyone believed these gods were real. Many people at the time were open to new religions, especially those from the East, anything that would fill the deep spiritual void in their lives. And so we see that God chose to manifest his Son into the world at just the right time, at this particular time in history. It was, as Paul says, the fullness of time, politically, religiously, culturally, and spiritually. And it was then, and not a moment sooner or later, that God chose 
to act. But let's ask the final question, why did God do this at all? Why did God manifest his Son? Well, he did it for us, Peter says. That means for our benefit. That brings us to our third point. Our text ends with the words, for you, for you. Peter writes, he was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now, these are perhaps the most significant words in our text. They tell us that the reason why God manifested his Son, in fact, the reason why he sent him into the world at all, was for us. It was for our benefit. The sense is he did this in order to help us. In the original Greek, the word you is emphatic. It's like Peter is saying, it's for you that he did this. By saying to his readers that God manifested his Son for them, Peter doesn't mean to exclude those who came before them. For Christ came for the benefit of all sinners in both the Old and the New Testaments. From the very beginning of time, sinners were saved in exactly the same way by grace through faith in Christ. The only difference is that in the Old Testament, believers look forward to the coming of Christ, and in the New Testament, they look back to the coming of Christ. But in a special sense, Christ was manifested especially to those who lived during the days of Peter. And that's because some of them may have had direct contact with him. They may have seen him. They may have heard his teaching and witnessed his many miracles. And even if they didn't, they had the privilege of firsthand eyewitness accounts of Christ and his work through his apostles. Well, whatever the case, the point that Peter is making is that God manifested his son for us, for our benefit. Now, how was this of benefit for us? Well, the answer, I trust, is obvious. For had Christ not been manifested, had he not come into the world, we would be without hope. We could not be saved. Why? Because he and he alone could make atonement for our sins. And that's because he was both God and perfectly righteous man. And he had to be man because it was man who sinned. And the justice of God requires that the one who sins must also pay the penalty for his sins. But he also had to be perfectly righteous because one who is not righteous cannot satisfy for others. And he had to be fully God because only God could earn for us the righteousness that we need to stand before him and live. And what is more, only God could sustain the wrath of God against him so as to deliver others from it. Well, there's only one who meets these qualifications, one who has ever met these qualifications. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear friends, had he not come into the world, had he not been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, had he not suffered and died and rose again on the third day, we could not be saved. We would perish in our sins. But the fact is, he did. And the good news of the gospel is that those who repent of their sins and believe on his name and look to his atoning sacrifice on the cross as the only hope and ground of their salvation, they shall receive the pardon of all of their sins and they will have peace with God and they will be adopted as his children and they will receive the gift of everlasting life. Oh, it's no wonder then that Peter wrote that Christ was manifested for us 
He didn't come into the world and suffer and die for his own benefit. He did this for our benefit. He did this so that we, sinners, worthy of God's wrath and eternal condemnation, that we might be saved. Oh, is that not a wonder? Child of God today, he came and was manifested for you, for you. And who are you? Who are you by nature? Nothing. Unworthy. Hell-deserving. But he came for you. He came to forgive your sins. He came to adopt you as his child. He came to give you the gift of everlasting life. He was manifested for you. And this is what makes Christmas merry, isn't it? It's not the food and the drink. It's not the presents and the decorations. It's not getting together with family and friends. It's knowing that Christ was manifested to sinners like you and like me. And dear friends, Christ is still being made manifest today. Not in, movie, not in movies about the life of Jesus. Not in Christmas plays that are performed in various Christian schools and churches across the world at this time of year. No, he is manifested in his holy and infallible word. I quoted earlier from John Calvin who said that Christ was manifested in the Gospels and he's absolutely correct. For when we read the Gospels and hear them preached, God is manifesting His Son to sinners. He's putting the spotlight on His Son on the stage and He's revealing to us His glory and His beauty and His willingness and His ability to save. And He's saying, as it were, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. Believe on Him. Love Him. Serve Him. And you shall be saved. Oh, my friend, are you doing that today? When our Lord was manifested for the first time, John says he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. The vast majority of his own people rejected him and refused to accept his claims, but alas, others did. Their eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit to acknowledge Christ as the promised Messiah, to look to him, to embrace him in faith. And one day, they will see his face and he will be manifested to them fully and completely. And they will rejoice and they will behold his face to an everlasting eternity. My friend, will you be one of them? Amen. Dear friends, it's our great joy to be able to preach to you the word of God every Sunday on this station. If you are blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, We'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Won't you please take the time to write us a short note. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, and Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. And when you write to us, please indicate the call letters of this station. If you do take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you free of charge a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers, in which the former radio pastor of this program explains the so-called doctrines of grace, and we hope that it may be a rich blessing to you and your family. Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages, but you can access and download all of our messages at any time from our website at www.
www.banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can make a donation right on our webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Thank you for listening, and now, until next week, may the Lord be with you all.